All right, we are in Acts 25 through 17. I, it's a little ambitious of a schedule to get through that many verses. So this morning, the topic is um, Paul's travel as he's heading to a key meeting, by the way, that'll happen in my latest with the elders from Ephesus. And that will help us understand a biblical definition of church leadership. I don't know if we'll get to that this week, but if not, we will next week. I have a bunch of material, and remind me, I'll give you a little um, preview of some things you can be studying on your own. So let me read a, the first verse or two and then pray and we'll start teaching the Bible. Acts 25 and 6 said, But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days. And there we stayed seven days. That was Luke describing this part of the journey. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that today we can gather and learn your word and encourage one another. Thank you that we have fellowship with you and one another. We have the word of God that you've given to us to study. And may we have a, a desire to learn and grow and pray for those who are uh, suffering and sick. And remember, Lord, why we're together, your work of grace that saved us. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, as we're looking at this, Luke here joins with Paul on his journey. Interestingly, let me give myself a little better chance to read the notes. It's interesting that some people just don't believe Luke actually was here. They say, well, he's just focusing it, whoever wrote this, the narrator. But there's no reason to doubt that Luke was an eyewitness and actually traveled with Paul. The details are very clear. These are things that Luke saw, and he was part of this party. And now it's interesting over the years as the historicity of the Bible is confirmed by archaeology, better studies of, of documents that are found from history. There's no reason to doubt that Luke was who he claimed to be, was actually a traveling companion at some of these journeys. And that explains his knowledge of these details. So on this trip, they are going back to churches previously established in areas where there were Christians. I showed you the map last time. I didn't put it on this particular PowerPoint. And there, Paul is encouraging the saints. This is heading toward this meeting with the elders. And that's going to be an important thing for us to know. Luke first appears in the uh, document in Acts 16, 10, 11, and 12. Let me read that. Acts 16, 10, 11, and 12. And when, when, when he had seen the vision, immediately we, we, there's a we passage, sought to go into Macedonia, 
concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samuel Thrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, from there to Philippi, which is the leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in the city for some days. Now, I believe that the most likely reconstruction of this is that here we find Philippi again. So the likely thing is that Luke was at Philippi, where we first see a we passage, and stayed there. So Paul went on, went to the other places that he preached, and ended up back at Philippi and rejoined Luke. So I think that's a good reconstruction of the situation. Even uh, Dr. Peterson says there is something to be said for the view that Luke remained in Philippi until this return visit by Paul. Luke's more personal way of telling the story resumes, says Peterson in 25 through 6, and continues until the team arrives in Jerusalem, 2118. Though it is absent from the scene in Miletus, 2016 to 38, where the focus is entirely on Paul and his counter with the Ephesians elder. So Luke is an eyewitness. The other material he wrote, according to the beginning of Luke, was obtained from other eyewitnesses. So as you know, I love Luke Acts, the two-volume work. It's amazing, amazing. As far as just literature written in the Greek language from that era of history, it's amazing. It's outstanding. His grasp of, of the Greek language is, according to scholars, very strong. Uh, the only other document that would have the kind of eloquent Greek would be the book of Hebrews, and we don't know particularly who the author of that was probably an Alexandrian Jew who was trained in Alexandria, but this is brilliant literature. Now, what about this eyewitness account of these journeys and where it's heading, which is ultimately to Jerusalem? I've got a bunch of material here. Behind the scenes, what's going on here is Paul is intent to go to Jerusalem. And we know, because we read ahead, that there's going to be people who try to dissuade him from going. But he's going to Jerusalem. And we also know from elsewhere in other epistles, or in the epistles, that Paul was very concerned about this collection to help the needy saints in Jerusalem. And one of the reasons that that was important was that there was pressure and there was a fissure that could happen between those who were loyal to Judaism, who had become Christian, and the Gentiles who had come to faith. And we'll find when Paul gets to Jerusalem that James warned him when he got there that there were thousands of people who were 
Christians who were zealous for the law and they were not happy with Paul and the Gentile Christians. And so during this time, during this time that we're looking at here, Paul wrote the book of Romans. Somewhere in here, the book of 1 Corinthians is written. And then 2 Corinthians. So this is where these debates are going on. And Paul is adamant that the church is not a Gentile church and a Jewish church, but one new man. Ephesians 2.15. And that the real issue in salvation history is not Judaism versus everything else, though Paul obviously, and we don't want to get this wrong, said that God's promises to Abraham and the patriarchs are still valid. He still has a plan for uh, ethnic national Israel, but that the church age is God bringing together and building on the foundation of Christ and his apostles, the one new man. Through those who are converted through the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, who came to die for sins once for all. Now, what we'll find out, Paul is taking up this collection amongst churches that are mostly Gentile in order to go forward with this plan to get to Jerusalem for the relief of the saints to show the unity of the church, to take care of people who are under a famine and under persecution. But what happens is when he gets there, there's a riot. And the mention of this collection doesn't happen until later in Acts because the intervening events were so volatile. One of the things that is the most difficult thing in our day or any day to preserve is the unity of the faith and the integrity of the gospel and the fellowship that we have. And it's just as difficult today because of the events that have happened in church history. Defining the church biblically is very difficult because our minds are filled with every debate that's happened since the death of the apostles. Our minds are filled with what happened, uh, the Roman Catholicism, some of the early Christological heresies that were thankfully corrected, but still are out there. The, 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 the mixture of politics and Christianity, all the things that happen in church history do not define the church. The church is defined by scripture alone. Now, if you are, are willing to think critically about this, I need people to help me. And so I feel a heavy burden to write a book defining the church as simply and biblically as possible. And one of the most important sections of the Bible that will help is going to be Acts chapter 20. So what I did to that end is that I went through the Greek and looked up the different terms that will show up. And maybe you can read ahead and next week let me know what you found. 
But one of the terms for leadership is presbyteros. What is presbyteros? The elder. Now, there are elders in Ephesus that will meet Paul and Miletus when they get there. Now, the term uh, for elder, I look at every usage in the New Testament, and when it's used as church leaders, it's plural. It says in 1 Timothy 5, 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Titus 1, 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so I might put what remained in order and appoint elders as I directed you. And so there are elders. Now what we're going to see, and you can read ahead on this, is that the priest Buteros, which are mentioned in Acts, elders, there's another term that's called episkopos. And what's, an, what's that all about? Overseers. What's an, the term episcopate is a term that's used for a visitation. So if you look at that term, it's found here in Acts 20.28. If you want to look ahead to that, turn to Acts 20.28. This is one of the key verses for defining the church. This is addressed to the elders at Ephesus. Be, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So, Notice the term flock. The term flock is where we get the idea of the shepherd or shepherds. So you have episcopos, overseers. Now, someone was talking to me about this before church. One of the confusions that English speakers have is the term bishop. Now, where did the term bishop come from? Chess players. Chess? <laughs> okay. Uh, do you know, Eric? I, I, I don't want you to put on. Well, the term bishop is found in the King James Bible. So bishop would be a term that would describe what in theology is called the monopiscopate. The monopiscopate is the idea that church government would have a hierarchy with someone above multiple churches that would be in charge. That's the monopiscopate. The term bishop you find in the King James Bible. Now, people are more aware of this right now because of the recent uh, funeral for Queen Elizabeth, which I would certainly, everyone agrees that this was a remarkable lady with a lot of character qualities. But who's in charge of the Church of England? Anybody? Nobody knows? Yeah, the, the, yeah, the, the monarch. And so the King James Bible has the term bishop 
and I'm willing to be corrected about this, but the king was in charge of the church after the split from Rome, and therefore the term bishop is used to describe church leadership, and the real term is episcopos or uh, episcope, which would be the overseers. The term, I don't know why any of these Greek terms would be translated bishop. Steve, you know Greek. Do you understand? Have you heard that? Oh, here, we're going to get you a mic. Yeah. I, Before he gets it, don't they call the defender of the faith, the king or the queen? Yeah, that's in church history, you have the uh, idea that the government, the civil government and the church somehow joined together. That goes back to Constantine, probably, yes. Yeah, the word bishop is actually a derivative of the Greek word episcopus. Right. So, but what's interesting is that the, uh, in the King James Bible, the, the word episcopus is translated as bishop several times, but in Acts chapter 20, where the, um, Paul refers to the, the elders of Ephesus as, a, as episcopoi, and that's where King James translates that word as overseer. So, so there's a little bit of trans, translator's bias in there. Yeah, so bishop would be an English word. Derived from the Greek word. Right, but the Greek word doesn't really mean bishop, does it? No. No. Uh, and it's plural um, in Acts twenty twenty eight. So that's where that term came from. Now, I did a bunch of study on this in seminary because I was interested in the issue. I'm trying to understand the, how to define the church. One of the more difficult terms to define is church. Ecclesia means called out one. Now, episcopos um, can also be, uh, is, is the root of the term for visitation. Is that correct? Visitation? Oversight. Yeah, and it would mean to look over. Now, when there's a visitation of God, what happens? Yeah. Where's my... Oh, here it is. I get my Greek Bible. Someone... Um, if someone could look this up, Jesus laments over Jerusalem in Luke Acts, in Luke, and he said, you did not recognize the day of your visitation. Could you look that one up? Let me give you the, the idea here. When you have that sort of visitation, it's God coming, not that God's not omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent, but there's the idea of a tangible visitation that would be bringing either salvation or judgment. So do you have that, Eric? I, I do, I do. Luke 19.44, um, I don't know how far up you want me to read, but this is where... He's come into Jerusalem. They've rejected him. And in verse 44, he says, And they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. There's that company. word. Yes. What verse is it again? Uh, 1944 of okay. Luke. Now, 
there are other visitations. If you go back into the Old Testament, at Babel, wasn't there a visitation? And so what happened? Judgment, right. So God himself, God the Son, visits, and he's rejected. So that's what, I'll just let that go for now. We'll keep moving here. Let's go to the next couple of verses. So keep that in mind. We're heading toward this um, Paul and the elders and overseers who shepherd the flock. I wanted to bring that out too. So the term overseers, episcopos, and elders, presbyteros, which in a very simple way, non-technical way, means older man. Okay? Elder. And then the shepherd or shepherds are also used. So the elders, overseers, are to shepherd the church of God for whom, whose well-being they must care for. Go ahead. First um, Peter 5 has that very thing where Peter says, therefore I exhort the elders. I would assume that's presbyteros. I don't have the Greek in front of me. But in verse 2 he says, shepherd the flock. And that's right. the term right. for, the, for the pastor. So those three terms, the poimen, the episkopos, and the... Uh, the presbyteros, they're all used interchangeably for the elder pastor. And by the way, that's been confused in American culture because what we do is we say, well, the, the elder is the guy who does the business stuff and the pastor is the one who preaches and teaches. But every pastor is an elder and every elder is a pastor. All three of those terms, episcopos, presbyteros, and the poimen, the, the pastor, they're all interchangeable. An elder is a pastor, and a pastor is an elder. Right. That's how it's done in the Bible. Okay, so the, the role of the episcopos, which would be the same people, is to be... Now, this is under the broader category of the authority of Scripture, priesthood of every believer. The overseer is to uh, act as those who look out for God's interest. So, you know, the epi would be upon, and then the scopos would look after. Is this really what the church is? Uh, the, Paul wants to ask a question or make a statement. So, therefore, the more we're trained in the Scripture and have a love for the truth, we're able to care about the well-being of every single person whether it looks like somebody has something to offer or not. Church history is filled with gravitating to the powerful and the kingmakers and whatever and ignoring the widows and the, the needy ones. Yes. Is this uh, early church bureaucracy or are things a little bit more grassroots? And uh... Well, in, as history goes on, in various situations, there's more or less, um, how would you say it? The bureaucracy happens the bigger a group gets. And I, there's categories where we don't want to do false binding, but I'll, I will say this much. No matter how big anything is, we cannot ever depart from the authority of Scripture, the priesthood of every believer, and reject the monopiscopate always. And there's no bishop somewhere in some other city or apostle or prophet, as the NAR claims, who has authority 
over some local church somewhere else. Every local gathering of the body of Christ is under the authority of Scripture, the gospel, Christ is the head, and we have uh, care for one another. There's no monopiscopate. There's no, uh, the, the fivefold ministry claims they have apostles that have translocal authority. And that is false. It's flat out false. That is not true. And they don't have that authority, nor will they, I know from, because I confronted several of them, apostles and prophets, they will not submit to the authority of scripture. They claim the right to teach unbiblical doctrine and make predictions that never happen and don't submit to any scrutiny other than other apostles and prophets who say, you're a great man of God, you're a great person of God, and we all agree with each other. But they won't submit to the authority of Scripture, so therefore it's invalid. That's how Luther stood against the entire Roman system. When the word lists the qualifications for an uh, elder and a uh, uh, pastor-teacher, they're really close to identical, and one of the ones for the elder is the ability to teach. Great. So the obligation of any leadership in the church is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So any local church should have a compelling interest in preaching the gospel. That's how God adds people to the church. And equipping every believer with, with the scriptures, with the truth, with the ability to make proper distinctions and categories, do true and not false binding and loosing. Binding means requiring, okay, forbidding certain things, and loosing means there's liberty. False binding and loosing is false teaching. So equip the saints, give people the tools they need to discern and the motivation to preach the gospel and the ability to search the scriptures. The Bereans were noble-minded because they, the literal word is nobility in the Greek, to search the scriptures. Is this true or not? But when you are in awe of a bishop or apostle who has a power over everybody and can't be questioned other than by other bishops, that's absurd. But that's the Rome that Luther ran into. Um, it's not right. It's not right. And if we're, anyone teaching has done the study, can be corrected, but should be prepared to give a reason for the hope that's within each of us. Is this valid? And why do you believe it? And can you defend it? And sometimes there are things that are difficult to understand and we're, they're not essential, but we can at least discuss it. We should never, ever be offended if somebody wants to question whether a teaching is true or false and is there evidence for it. No one should be in awe of a sinner saved by grace, which is, it's, there, there's nothing awesome about any of us, but the God is an awesome God. Let, let's make some progress here on this. And then, well, this is going to be what we're going to cover as we're going forward. The, 
the speech, by the way, there's three speeches. I'll, I'll get to that in a bit. Let's get to verses 7 and 8. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, notice we, Lucas there, he's an eyewitness, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day. And he prolonged his message until midnight, and there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. That would explain they continue. And I was sort of lamp, a little clay pot, oil in it, a little wick, it's burning. Now, this doesn't imply they, they, the guy that falls asleep, which we'll get to, had, had carbon monoxide poisoning. That was not Luke's point. And uh, the fact is that it went very, very late. <clears throat> now, why did they do this? Well, let's look at Acts 17.2. Acts 17.2. I'll read that to you. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbath reasoned with them from the scriptures. So Paul went to synagogues wherever he went and they opened the scriptures and reasoned. Have you ever heard people um, rail against reason? Oh, yeah. The emergent church is known for that. And in some uh, experiential groups, I heard preachers come and say that some glory, it's better felt than telt. Uh, no, that's not true. Uh, we're talking about this in the series we're doing uh, uh, for CIC podcast. Let me point something out. There's no uh, feeling, impression, sensation, metaphysical thing that happens that we know is God. The people who do transcendental transcendental meditation get into an altered state. They think they meet God. People go to a meeting and they say the presence of God showed up. Well, how do they know that? Well, they have a certain feeling, or there's um, it's it's a similar thing that would happen at any sort of event, and whether this feeling is really God or not. It's impossible to know. How we know that God is at work is through the proclamation of the word of God and the confession of Jesus Christ. And that's what the Bible gives as a test of spirits. So that came up when I was in Bible college and some teachers were saying God showed up and others said "Uh, you can't trust those sort of things. That's how William Branham became, in their, his followers' minds, the greatest man of God ever, but he didn't even teach the Trinity. He was a heretic. So you can't go by that. So reason, why, why is reason important? Here's why. That's, here's our word. It's on, on the slide here. Dialegomai. They were talking to them. Dial, where we get our word dialogue, but here it means dialegomai, which is often reasoning. Acts 17, 2, I read to you. Acts 17, 17. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. 
No, Acts 17 is where Athens is. And he went, and there's a long reasoning with the philosophers at Mars Hill. And um, Acts 18.4, he was reasoning in a synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Acts 18.19, they came to Ephesus and he left them there. Now he himself entered a synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. What does it look like to reason with the Jews in the synagogue? Let me explain Luke's method. In Acts, an extended, we know what happened because there'll be an incident of an extended speech with a lot of details. The first one is at uh, Pentecost with Peter. In the case of Paul, there's three such extended speeches. The first one is found in, I believe, in Acts 13, where Paul goes into synagogue, the city in Antioch, and Luke gives a big, long dip, uh, discussion or description of his speech. And so you know what that was like. The second one is in Acts 17 at Mars Hill, where there's a long speech to the Athenian philosophers. And the third one will be in Acts 20, where there's a long speech to the elders in Ephesus. So the three long speeches by Paul, narrated by Luke, are to Jews, Greeks, and the Church of God. What are the three categories? Give no offense to Jew, nor Greek, nor the Church of God. And the reason is part of these speeches. Now, what about this gathering here? There's a, there's a little bit of question about the details, and I'll read some of that from Dr. Schnabel. So, um, four, three and four. Okay, here we go. What about the first day of the week? Paul was planning to leave the next day, that is after sunrise, according to Dr. Schnabel. This was probably a regular meeting of the community rather than an ad hoc gathering because of Paul's presence in the city. If Jewish reckoning is used, says Schnabel, the day of the meeting was Saturday. If the Roman week is used, the day of the week was Sunday. However, the overlay of Jewish, Roman, and Greek practices of reckoning, the beginning of the day from sunset, from midnight, or from sunrise, respectively, creates difficulties for understanding what Luke's readers would have assumed. The meeting could have taken place on Saturday night and early Sunday morning, or on Sunday evening and Monday morning. So that's the discussion. We don't have to solve that. Here's what you need to know. Those who are born of God and gather as Christians have Christian liberty as to what day they meet. No, that is a, it's definitely a matter of Christian liberty. There's no binding day. Now, why would God do that? Because the church is one new man, which is those who are saved through the gospel who are commanded to gather together. 
depending on where people are as, as history progresses, the opportunities change. I, I know a, a brother by email. I, knew, I know another person in per, that I went to Bible college with who was a pastor in Israel and now is California. Another brother is a pastor in Israel. Israel gives Shabbat as the day. So Christian groups, whoever's in the group, meet on Saturday in Israel because that day is available where most people don't have other duties. In America, most Christians meet on Sunday. Why? Because that day is available, at least till noon when football starts, <laughs> and uh, people don't generally have other duties. But that may vary from place to place. The point is not the, the day that it happened, but that we gather and break bread and care for one another and have these meetings. God has given us liberty. Does that make sense? And so you're not sinning if you meet on Sundays. You're not sinning if you meet on Saturdays. Or you're not sinning if the only day that works for the group is some other day, depending on the situation. So how we resolve that, there was also some practical reasons as far as the travel and the ship in the time of the year which we'll get to. So the gathering and its timing, though, so, yeah, go ahead, Ron, uh, bring uh, back over here, uh, Carly, back there. So this is probably Sunday. We know the first day of the week was common meeting time. Yes. So uh, we're not uh, bound to the Sabbath because we're not under the law. Exactly. Simple. Amen. You're right. You got it. That's why binding and loosing is important. What is a matter of liberty and to what are we bound? And that is very important. Absolutely. Second, the community of believers met in the evening with lamps illuminating the room. And Paul wrote, taught till midnight. Paul's, this is Schnabel. Paul's stated intention of leaving the next day suggests that the meetings of the church usually did not last that late. It wouldn't work for me because I definitely would not be able to comprehend everything that was said if it got late enough because I'm being tired. Most believers would have had to work from morning till evening. According to Schnabel, only the rich were free in the afternoons. So there's an upper room there were believers, and Paul was teaching, and it went on because he was leaving, and he wanted to make sure he got to them the teaching they needed to be encouraged in the faith. That's my statement. In antiquity, according to in antiquity, according to Schnabel, lamps were containers for flammable oil and wick holders, usually made of clay. Then he says, third, they came in, in order to break bread. So this would be an ordinary meal, but when Christians gather and break bread, they're always remembering what God did for them. We're part of that. Even in Acts 2.42, they gathered and remembered the Lord's death, and they shared a meal. Today we will after church. Um, and that was about the time he wrote Romans, by the way. Paul had recently written a long letter to the Christians in Rome, 
as a summary of the gospel that he had preached and defended since his conversion. So he was explaining probably things that we'd find in our book of Romans during this long meeting. So what happens? He's reasoning. Don't let anybody tell you that to be truly spiritual, you need to lay aside reason. It's not even possible to do. Because the claim that the truly spiritual are not focused on reason is using reason to tell you not to use reason. <laughs> I, I loved debating that when I was in seminary because there was always somebody going to argue against reason. And I loved it because then I would, as a fellow student, get in there and debate. They want you to turn off your mind. Why? Because then you end up abused by people that don't have your best interests in mind. Yes. When Jesus was, or when Paul was talking to the uh, philosophers, didn't he say, and I reasoned with them? Yeah. yeah. It's the same. That's what we're supposed to do. Paul. Yeah, I'm a little fascinated by this idea of reasoning. Uh, I, I agree with everything you say, certainly. But when a, an evangelist or somebody's out there uh, reasoning, uh, they don't want to get into a debate particularly. But nonetheless, they're reasoning, they're contending, they're reasoning. And um, here you're, you're talking with a guy who's, well, dead in their sin. They have no idea what's going on. And it's the Holy Spirit that convicts. Uh, yet you use reason nonetheless uh, as a, a way in which to... Well, proclaim the gospel. And uh, so when does reasoning turn into debate? And that's always been a fascinating Well, the term, the term dialegomai can be translated to debate if you want to. It's, it's not wrong to debate. That's exactly what happens. It's not wrong to debate. I, I, that, uh, let me explain. Uh, I have agreed to a number of debates in my life because it gives people a chance to hear the issues and look at scripture and see what's true. And some of the debates, it's amazing that they happened. Uh, it's a part of God's providence. The debate with Doug Padgett was the most amazing one. He's emergent and they're known for not believing in reason, but believing that things are going to evolve spiritually. And so how do you debate someone who doesn't believe in debate? It doesn't believe in reason and evidence because they're pan-entheists. The emergent means God is in everything, and what we do is meditate. Meditation involves turning off the mind. So the reason those who meditate are against debate because de debate will activate your mind and you think about issues, and then you don't get into the altered state of consciousness consciousness and you'll never meditate and so it was really a, an odd situation but here's what you do you use reason anyhow because that's how God deals with human beings yes yeah I, on the subject of uh, you know when does reasoning turn into you know debate and arguing and stuff so this is just my opinion but when we do evangelism what I think a lot of us like to do is just have some open-ended questions, find out what the other person believes, and then try to point to the Bible. 
And if somebody doesn't even want to go with, with that, you, you kind of have to yeah. figure it's not going to work very well. <laughs> you know. But if, if people are willing to look at the Bible and you can reason from the Bible, I think that's kind of the basis that you go with, I think. Yeah, I'm not teaching an evangelism technique. I'm just explaining how human beings are different from unreasoning beasts. Okay? Um, the idea... Let me, let me explain the gospel and why you have to have logic even if you don't believe in it. What are the basic claims of the gospel? What is the background for knowing and understanding the gospel? Number one, human beings are sinners and they need a savior. We're lost. We're alienated from God. Number two, Christ, God the Son, the very creator of the universe, which is a concept. The universe isn't eternal. It's, it's created. So the eternal creator created the whole universe out of nothing. And the creator, according to John 1, 1 through 18, God the Son, through whom all was created, came into our world. And who Christ is, is a concept. Why is that logical? Why do we have to explain it? Because every religion, other than just atheism, has some kind of Christ. You have the Christ consciousness. You have the Christ of Mormonism. You have the Christ of Islam, which is a false understanding of Jesus. So if you don't get the same idea explained, then you're, what are you evangelizing? Okay, because we're talking about two different things. So the Mormons say, yeah, we believe in Christ, so no use talking to us. The Jehovah's Witnesses say, well, we believe in Christ, don't talk to us. Why? Because they're, they're Christ the created being. So that's, human beings are not instinctive beasts. We use reason to distinguish between poison and food. And those who don't make that distinction are called people who are poisoned. <laughs> now, some people choose to be poisoned because they want to what, go ahead and then I'll continue. Well, just God says that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. So right. we have d- intelligence. We're not just beasts like you said. Right. It's a command. Well, uh, use your mind. That God yeah. gave us. That's the whole person, the whole heart that turns to God. And so distinguishing doesn't make any sense. Now, in the process of presenting the truth of Christ, we have to know we're talking to human beings, not unreasoning beasts. And human beings have a full set of feelings and experiences and whatever, but without Christ, we're all alienated from God. Here's the thing that's amazing about the gospel. It's designed to offend everyone. <laughs> because it's offensive to the, to the Greeks because they are full of their own pride and they don't think that they need some crucified Jewish Messiah. It's offensive to the Jews because cursed is he who hangs on a tree. So if Jesus is our Messiah, then why would the Romans defeat him? But if it is to those who believe it, it's the power of God. First Corinthians teaches that. 
So that's, I mean, that's just what the gospel is about. It's not a feeling. It's not a plan to make life better. It's salvation, forgiveness of sins, the hope of eternal life. The, the, the fact that there is God the Son, the sinless life, the virgin birth, death, burial, resurrection are all concepts that distinguish the true Christ, the one who ascended to heaven, who's coming again, there's future judgment. They're all concepts about facts that really happened in history that are suitable for human beings living in history. The gospel's designed for humans. We don't need to change it. Now, once people are converted by God's grace, they are converted with a hunger for the truth. They want to learn. And there's no reason to feed people anything but pure spiritual food. So we, we can't escape it. One of my favorite books was Francis Schaeffer on Escape from Reason. To try to escape from reason is to escape from being a human being. Now, I got to be careful about analogies. I went out to California when I wrote about um, these things. I pointed out that you have to use reason. Now, in Minnesota, they have people that search for edible mushrooms. And so I said, well, are you going to meditate and then go decide which mushroom to eat? Or are you going to go to a class and learn which one's edible? Well, I tried using that in California, and they told me that doesn't work. Well, for one thing, in the dry part of California, they don't have mushrooms. And then I thought later, the other reason it doesn't work is they prefer the hallucinogenic ones in some places. <laughs> tell, me, tell me where the poison ones are. They're the best. <laughs> so there's the problem. See, the LSD was to make it so you can't really function as a human being because you go into some altered state and you're not functional in reality. In some cases, people flipped out and were no, had to be taken care of by someone else because they can't function as humans. So this dialegomai, which can be translated reasoning, is essential. It's not just, uh, go ahead, Eric, it's not just optional. One thing, Bob, and I've tried to distinguish over the years is two types of inability, because as you're mentioning your comment, Paul, automatically we think as Christians, wait a minute, people that are dead sinners in Adam, how are they going to respond to reasoning? What we distinguish in the Bible is between natural inability and moral inability. So what we're claiming is when we give the gospel, as Bob is saying, people are not unreasoning beasts. It's not as if God's word is in Chinese and we only understand English. That would be natural inability. But the moral inability is the idea that we hear what's being said when we're unregenerate and we don't like it. And a passage that proves that is found in Romans chapter 10 where Paul says this, he's citing from Deuteronomy 32, he says, but the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend down into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up. This is uh, Romans 10, 5 through 7. The point is, God hasn't asked us to do the impossible, but simply to believe in the word. So the unregenerate, it's not that they don't understand what you're saying rationally, 
The fact is, according to John 3.19, they know precisely what you're saying. They don't like it. So the opposition, what, what the Holy Spirit overcomes in regeneration, is the will. They have a will that's in bondage. They don't like what you're saying. They love the darkness rather than the light. That's John 3.19. And so the inability, we have to remember that when we're reasoning with people, it's not that they don't understand what you're saying. Again, sin does affect our minds as well. It, it infects our entire being. But the primary issue of inability is a moral one, not a natural one. So they'll understand, keep using reasoning, as Bob is saying, God will use it. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, right. Romans ten seventeen. Absolutely. Preach Christ. To piggyback on what Pastor Eric just said, I've heard it said many times, even recently, that people go to church and their yardstick for going to church is, do I feel better about myself coming out of the service than I did going in? And that's the whole concept. I mean, there's billboards on KTIS and there's a person that's feeling so good about themselves because of a song that they heard. So Christianity is a device to make to make yourself feel better about yourself. And it's exactly the opposite. I mean, what Pastor Eric just said, I mean, it's the truth and the truth hurts. Right. And Did Paul hear an adequate explanation of the gospel when he heard Stephen preach? Yes. Did Stephen lay out the scriptures? Yep. And was Stephen there willing to die for that? Yes, he was martyred. And Saul of Tarsus heard that whole thing. And he was so hard-hearted, he wouldn't listen. And he went out breathing threats of slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. How was it he was converted? Messiah stopped him in his tracks. Uh, Why are you persecuting me? We don't know how God is going to intervene in, in whose life, but we're obligated to preach the gospel. Now, everybody, people are different. One person who ended up being a lifelong friend and helped to me, uh, by the name of Bert Sisler, who uh, was born in 1923, the same year my dad was born. In 1983, when we first decided to start teaching the truth and confronting some of the things that were wrong and then teaching through the Bible, so I was teaching this little bitty Sunday school class. Somebody brought this guy in who had been forced to retire from, as a pilot. He'd, he'd been a World War II vet been a pilot, and then he was uh, worked for Northwest Orient before they merged, and had to retire at age 60. An old guy that we knew at some meetings we used to go to brought him in because he was a Unitarian Universalist, and they wanted, I was going to teach about the New Age and why we don't agree with it, 1983. So he sits down, I'm teaching about the New Age, what's believed, why it's not right, why it's not Christian, what the gospel is. And there was a guy that I'd never seen who had come. A week later, the guy comes back, said, uh, I want to talk to you. I said, sure. He said, well, I just had to retire from the airlines. And um, this Ben Breon was the name. Well, I remember everybody from way back, but a guy named Ben Breon, I brought him. And he said, I listened to your lecture. I'm a Unitarian Universalist, but I went home and thought about it, and I decided you're right. I want to be a Christian. Now, that's a little more unusual than somebody, you know, oh, man, this is... 
he that's just was Bert. And that and Bert became how many of you knew Bert over the years? And he, he became just an unbelievable friend for decades. So we can't always say it has to happen this way, or it has to happen that way, or it has to be a lightning bolt from heaven. Whether it seems like a lightning bolt, it still is. Because who, how many Unitarian Universalists will come back and say, well, I decide you're right. And he served the Lord, and uh, what a joy that is. So we don't, we're not looking for a certain emotion or a certain raise your hand or sign a card. Or, we're just wanting to preach Christ, and those who are converted will keep coming to hear the truth. Whether it was dramatic or just something happened, like I, I want to hear more, I want to learn. Uh, some people, it happens to children, they can't point to them time, but God uses the gospel. And anything that would suggest that reason and rational Bible study is not what Christians need is flat out false. It's, it's wicked, it's ungodly, and it will damage the flock every time. And when that happens, they usually end up under some charming, articulate person who's going to lead them astray. And the other thing that's essential, we were talking about this in our, yesterday we recorded some more uh, radio. If there's nothing about forgiveness of sins, you're probably hearing the wrong thing. Because the one problem every human being has that's ever born is being lost in sin and alienated from God. And the one need that always exists is forgiveness of sins. And you can't have a revival and call it a revival and say, there's no, you never even mentioned forgiveness of sins. It's, it's, it's nothing. It's a waste. Now, um, one more slide. We got a minute. Three on my clock. Two minutes. No, this went a long time. Acts 20, 9 through 10. Now, there was a young man named Eutychus. Remember, how did he know his name? Uh, Luke was there. He, he knew the details, how long it went, what kind of lighting they used. Everything happened. Luke was at the meeting. Sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. I'm glad that I'm not the only one to ever preach and somebody fell asleep. Well, it happened, but that's not exactly Luke's point here. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell on him, and after embracing him, he said, do not be troubled, for his life is in him. Now, this is... And uh, reminding us of other incidents in the Bible, I have them on the slide here, uh, where Jesus in Luke 7, 11 through 15, 8, 49 through 56. Remember in Luke 8, for example, what a glorious chapter of the Bible demonstrating the deity of Christ, where he walked on water, and then he went to the land of the Gentiles, Gerizines, and there was a maniac chained out in the cemetery, demonized, and 
unbelievable miracle. That guy was totally changed. And then he's, a, a fellow wanted him to come pray for his daughter. But in the meantime, I, wasn't there an issue of blood? I think that's in that, which means a perpetually unclean lady who was healed. And then they said, don't bother. The child died. He gets there, and there's a resurrection in that sense, not the under a perfect body, but to back to a mortal one. So there are stories in the Old Testament like this with Elisha and Elisha. So this means that Paul was like the, those in the Old Testament who spoke powerfully for God. Paul was appointed by Christ himself as an apostle. Okay? There are indeed signs of the real apostles in the book of Acts. Now, I'll introduce this and then um, mention some things that you can look up. I wonder if I have the verses on one of these slides here. Yeah, here we go. We'll introduce this. And when he had gone back up and broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while till daybreak. So he just kept having his lecture. Now, that's a long meeting. But he had to leave right after, and they took away the boy alive were greatly comforted. Breaking bread, conversing, comfort. The word talk, homileo, four times in the New Testament, all in Luke Acts, where we get our word homily. They were talking after the resurrection in Luke 24, so on. I'll mention that. Now, here's something you can write down for homework. Let's go to this slide here. It should be on your notes. What I want to do is have you look at these and read these three long addresses. The first was to the Jews at Pisidian Antioch in, in uh, Acts 13, 16 through 41. And what you want to do while you're reading these and analyzing them is look for themes that you find because this is how Luke tells us key things Paul preached to different audiences. The one in Acts 13, 16 to 41 was to Jews in a synagogue. The second was to Greeks at Mars Hill in Acts 17, 22 to 31. Now there's going to be similarities and dissimilarities and we want to see how Paul adapted the message but then did he get to the same point? Okay. And then the third one we haven't got to yet is his address to the elders, which is Luke 20, 17 to 38. So keep the printout that you have. Look at these three speeches, two of which I've already taught through, so they would be, uh, I don't know how long it took to get through them, but we don't have to go back over that. And one is yet to happen. So Paul spoke to three groups in the Jews, the Greeks, the Church of God. Isn't that interesting? Same group that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians. All this happened at similar times. Um, so that would be a good way to understand what the essential message was and what should be going on in the local church. And pray for me, I'm very burdened to write a book that will 
help anyone who'd want to have a Christian church that's not defined by church history, but by scripture alone. How could that be? What, what would that look like? How could Christians who don't, see people feel like they have to join something. Well, I think I, I'll join Presbyterian church. I think I'll join Lutheran church. I think I'll join Episcopal or I'll do this, or I'll do that. They want to join something. But what people have said is that wherever you are, if you start talking about Christ and the gospel and wanting to learn, there may be a tiny few people in a whole church that want to do that. And many people said that to me. But everybody should have a hunger to learn the word of God, okay? So let's see what the message was here. And I appreciate your prayers as well. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness, for your mercy and grace. And as we gather today, be with Eric as he preaches the word. Bless our hearts and minds as we remember your death until you come, the Lord's Supper. And Lord, be with each one. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, dear saints. Amen.